passage for today is Galatians 3.1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. All right. This is our passage today. I started writing and writing and writing. I was going to do one through nine. Oops. Here we are. Um, There's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of great words, uh, a lot of great uh, contextual Greek words that I wanted to open up, and there's a very beautiful picture here and some things that I think we need to hear. Um, I'll open us up in a word of prayer. Um, Before I do that, um, we've had a lot of growth in the last couple of years, a lot of people coming um, from different places, a lot of different churches, a lot of different faith traditions. Um, So there's two things that I I, I probably neglect to... um, to remind people or to teach people that two things that, what, that, that, that I've always been about. Um, number one, I've always been about gathering with, hey, can I get the lights a little brighter? I don't like to see anybody. You know what I mean? Pretend they're not here. I'm all alone. The way I practice it. I really do that. I get in here and wander around the stage and talk to myself. Um, so the first thing is I'm, I'm all about getting... The body of Christ, a very diverse body of Christ, different kinds of Christians all coming together um, to study um, the life and teachings of Christ from different angles. Um, I think we need to hear what, what the, um, the Lutherans and the Methodists and the um, modern contemporary theologians have to say from all different uh, denominations. We have Baptists, we have some Catholics, we have all kinds of Christians that gather here. We unite around a few simple things. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the hope of Jesus for the world. Um, other than that, we debate and we talk, and it's great, and it's wonderful. And it's always been that way, and hopefully it always will be that way. And so I don't expect to agree with all of you. I'm okay with that. I don't expect you to agree with me. Um, there's a biblical principle there of not being divisive. Um, and so the second thing that Watermark has always been about, that I have always been about, is the equality of men and women in the church. Um, I have always believed since the day I took the pulpit, nine years ago, and I have taught over and over in different passages of Scripture um, the things that Paul said about there's no more Jew or Greek, there's no more male or female, they were all one. I believe from the depths of my soul, as do the elders, that uh, women should serve in every position in the church. I really do. Um, I believe that that is where the gospel was heading to from the beginning. Um, that it was pulling us out of an old dead system. And modern evangelicalism is doing everything it can to put us back in chains, and, and I will not take my family back there. So um, here's what we're going to do. I got a lot of emails, a lot of questions, and I love that. People are thinking, people are talking and studying. Um, about a month from now, I'm going to teach a sermon that I'm writing already about women in the first century under Roman Empire rule, uh, women through church history, and, and women today. Um, in the church and how it should be. And I will make every possible argument I can for that. I'm also going to touch about, a, a little bit on what, uh, what Emily talked about last week, which um, I thought she was brave and eloquent. And I thought it was great, and I was blessed by it, and I don't know a lot of people were. So, um, yeah, there's that. Let's move along. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you were doing for us for uh, the way you are are growing us and stretching us and challenging us. Um, It is good. 
And so this morning I ask that you would help us to be very present, that you would wake us up to your presence in this room, that we are desperately loved by a God who expects nothing more from us than to just accept his love. And the only right response is thanksgiving. And so thank you. Remind us to be thankful for the rest of this day and the rest of our week. Let it become a a mode of thinking in our life. In your name, amen. So here's our passage today. Um, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. So there's some great words here that after I finished writing all about these words, I, I, I was out of room. Um, and so um, we are going to start right here. I'm just going to work right through it. And we're going to look at the word foolish. It's this word, anoetos. Um, normally when we talk about foolish, when you call somebody a fool today, you're kind of calling them an idiot. You're calling them stupid. You are saying, um, you're, you're kind of speaking of their IQ level and their brain power and their ability to comprehend things. And, and that's not what Paul is talking about. He's not insulting their intelligence. Um, this word basically means without understanding, thinking that leads to immorality. You see, in the ancient Jewish mode of thinking, there was um, a, a separation between sort of people who had lower IQs and were sort of intellectually challenged, if you will, and people who made bad decisions. There were very, very smart people making very bad decisions. And so when Paul calls them a fool, he's mainly talking about... Um, a way of thinking that leads to bad decisions. That somewhere over here, if you are a fool, if you are living in a way that is foolish, over here, that means somewhere back here you made a decision um, and, and, and your way of thinking became um, sort of off-centered. And so somewhere back here you, you started thinking a certain way and it led to your bad decisions. And so he's talking about this particular way of thinking. Um, and so he's not calling them stupid. Um, right thinking, intelligent thinking to them led to morality and discipline. So basically somebody who is wrapped up in, in lust and envy and greed and covetousness, people, somebody who murders, the only reason you can act out on these things is because somewhere back here you have misunderstood something very important. You've missed it. And so he's sort of pointing back to there and said, some of your views are wrong. You, you fools. Um, and this is really important because it, this goes back a long, long, long ways. Uh, if you actually go to um, and read over the Ten Commandments, a lot of, um, there's writings in the Talmud about this, a lot of ancient rabbis have written about this, and modern rabbis, they write about how um, the way the Ten Commandments are set up, and, and we've seen these our whole lives, but uh, when I actually heard this, it kind of opened my eyes up, like, oh, it makes, it makes sense. So the way they're set up, um, the first five are set up in a way um, that sort of sets the dials, in your mind and in your heart. And if you set the dials right, the second five will just come natural. And so, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not worship idols. So the first two um, are about sort of understanding your place, keeping God first, having an understanding that um, you are not the center of this universe, that we are not, that God is, God is unfolding things. And so, God is the one who must put things first. The creator of all things must be first in all things. And so there's this dials that you're setting, um, and you're not going to worship idols. You're not going to take anything else and put it above God. You're not going to, um, it, whatever posture God has, you will take that posture no matter how difficult it is because comfort is not as important as putting God first. Um, this is how um, the martyrs were able to suffer intense pain and death um, because their comfort was less important to them than understanding that God is the most important thing that there is. 
And so it leads to a completely different way of living. And so you're setting the dials. And the second three um, commandments are about remembering who you are. You're not going to take the name of the Lord in vain. You can't just flippantly just... It, it, there's this attitude of... of not being conscious of God, just ignoring the fact that there's something bigger going on and living for yourself. And then remembering the Sabbath, keep it holy. Remember that you are, um, it's been said millions of times, you are a human being, not a human doing. It's, life is about, God created a world of justice and rest. You are not um, supposed to live your life fully centered around what you do. It's about who you are. And sometimes all of creation should stop and rest and ponder God. And then, and then honor your father and mother. So I love that. Um, your life was given to you. You did not birth yourself. Your life was given to you. Uh, It is a gift. And you look back and you see where the gift came from and you honor that. And so if the five dials up front are set right, then you're not going to murder. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal. You're not going to bear false witness against your neighbor. You're not going to covet. You're not going to want anything else that anyone has because you are going to be thankful. You're going to understand. And you are going to be sort of I'm dialed into what God is doing. And so there's a lot of writing about this. And so when Paul calls them foolish, somewhere the dials are turned the wrong way. Somewhere they haven't understood that life is gift, um, that, that, that grace is real. Somewhere they haven't understood um, that the only reason they, are, they even woke up this morning is because God chose to give them breath another day. Um, and because God set things up so that they could enter into the world. And so there's this lack of understanding, this lack of setting the dials over here, and now they're, they're doing actions here that don't line up with the word of God. And so then we come to the second word. Um, so, oh foolish, anoitos Galatians, who has bewitched you? And so the word bewitched is a great word. It's the word baskino. Let's say this, baskino. Very good. Okay. Um, there's two root words here. Um, literally translated, this word means um, the evil eye. So it has sort of the superstitious sort of... Um, <laughs> I don't, all that pops into my head is like the Illuminati symbol of like the eye. Um, so, baskino. Uh, it, it comes from two root words. One is fasco. It means to fascinate, to have your eyes. You're fascinated by somebody, something. You picture somebody standing there just entranced, just staring, not able. Like they're trying to understand and they, they can't pull their eyes off of something. It's all they can think about. They're just fascinated with it. Um, and the other word, the other root word is ayin. It means eye. So, um, the idea here is uh, your eyes are transfixed on something, but, but the way the word is written and used in context, it has to do with sort of um, superstition. And so the word basically refers to you can't stop thinking about something, you can't get, get, can't get it out of your head, um, as if someone has cast a spell on you. That's kind of what reminds me of the Illuminati symbol, because there's like the beams coming out, and someone is just... Like, Star Trek, tractor beams, right? For those of you, I don't know, a long time ago. Um, it's, it, you're just, there's a spell on you and you can't get those off. Now, now they, they really did think that this, this word really does refer to, like, pagan kind of sorcery. And uh, it's, he's not literally saying that they're under the influence of sorcery. Um, it's an expression. It's an expression that is used constantly in ancient literature in a lot of letters. We have tons and tons of, uh, did you know we actually have Millions of pieces of ancient correspondence in the Roman Empire, like papyrus writings and scrolls, and many of them, the personal letters that are written to loved ones, um, end with a sentence that is very similar to this one that is found um, in a selection of papyrus. It says, Above all, I pray that you may be in health unharmed by the evil eye 
uh, and faring prosperously. So basically, I want you to be in health and unharmed by the evil eye. So there is a constant fear back then that somebody was going to put a curse on you or a hex on you. And so you kind of think um, that if things are going really bad in your life, that someone has given you the evil eye, the stink eye, if you will, um, and they're sta- they, they put a spell on you. And so there was this very superstitious world, and they were very afraid of these things in the Greco-Roman world. And so um, you break three pots in one day, and you're like, oh, there's a spell on me, whatever. So you go down to the marketplace, and what do you do? You offer some incense on the altar so that you can buy and sell in the marketplace. Um, and you get a mark on your hand or on your head, a la Revelation, and you walk into the marketplace. Um, and you, you, you maybe buy some trinkets that, that you are told will protect you from the hex that may be upon you. This one is good for the hex of breaking jars. So we'll put that on. Um, and um, you'll offer some incense. You know, you'll, you, you, maybe, you'll, maybe you'll buy a dove and sacrifice it on an altar. Um, and so all of this is wrapped up in, um, Paul says, your thinking is off. Um, who in the world has bewitched you and made you think that you are under some spell that something must be done to repay? That there's some trinket to buy, that there's some sacrifice that needs to be made on your behalf. Um, and so, of course, all of this is, is wrapped up in superstition. And superstition, let's define that. I mean, a very loose definition. Uh, superstition is basically the gods are angry with us. We must appease them. Offer another baby on the altar. Throw another virgin in the volcano. Try another spell because we need rain. We need food. We need protection. So do something to make the gods happy. This is ancient traditional superstition. That goes back a very, very long ways. Um, once in a while, I actually see it creeping in to Christianity. Um, Magical prayers that people can pray or something to become rich. Um, when I was a kid, there was this Prayer of Jabez book. Complete crap, by the way. Um, you pray this prayer. It's like a magical spell. And this, this stuff is crazy. It's, it's nonsense. It's antithetical to everything that Jesus taught his people. Um, and so that's superstition. In contrast, the gospel. God is good. God is love. God has sent Jesus to make peace with you. You do not have to live with, with the fear that you are at the mercy of these forces in the universe when the creator and sustainer of the universe is on your side. For the Greco-Roman uh, citizen, um, the average person, the peasant, afraid that all the gods are always angry with them and whenever things are going wrong, they've got to run down to the, to the agora and buy some trinkets or offer some sacrifices or burn some incense. This is absolutely freeing. The idea that there is a God who is looking at you with nothing but love and is gracing you with blessings and that you can receive and be thankful and not feel the need to pay back. And so now Paul is sort of going to address the payback part. So he says, your thinking has gone wrong because for some reason you think there's all these things you need to do to pay somebody back. Who has put a spell on you that, that, that is stuck to you that you somehow need to get off? Who has done this? Um, and then he answers perfectly these questions. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So, uh, the word portrayed is the word prografo. Um, it's where we get our word photograph. It it's a detailed drawing. Now, some theologians that I read this week um, write, write that, um, and I, I'm just putting this out there because I think it's fascinating, um, that uh, Paul said that 
what Paul is saying here is, is when he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed, that they're saying that Paul actually drew a picture of the crucifixion uh, so that they could see what exactly this was. Um, <clears throat> I think this is fascinating and interesting, but I'm pretty sure they knew what crucifixion was. They're living in the Roman Empire. Um, so the other, only other definition of this word is it was a placard and it was a notice. Now, William, William Barclay, an amazing um, New Testament scholar, writes about how um, he says that this this notice, specifically, the word that is used here, refers to a notice at a place of business um, or an auction house that a father is no longer responsible for the debts accrued by his children, that they have been auctioned off. So you picture this, and you picture it at an auction house. Um, this is actually an ancient receipt for the sale of a young slave girl. Um, and these would be hung on the wall. And... And when there was no more debt at a particular place, a father would make a tablet or a papyrus, um, and it would proclaim, um, my son has no more debt. It has been paid by me. And so he would go and put it on the placard. And the people would have seen the son working there all the time um, because he was in debt. And... Um, in the first century, slavery was one of the ways that you would pay off debt. You'd sell yourself into slavery. Say, hey, um, I need $10,000. I will be your slave for a year. Okay. And the guy tries really hard to get more than $10,000 of work out of the kid, basically. Uh, so it's a, it was a way you could underpay people um, who were desperate and in need. It was unjust. And so what the word prografo is in this context is it was a sign on the wall that said, my son no, no longer owes debt. It has been paid. It is not owed anymore. So, let's go back and read this verse again. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that, Christ, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So he talks about the portrait. And he says, for some reason, you're working to pay back a bunch of debt. Your work, you're offering sacrifices. You are, um, you're tithing of your mint, dill, and your cumin, as Jesus would say, of all your, of like your spice rack. You're going into spice rack and say, oh, God's going to be angry if I don't help give him a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, take it down to the temple, offer it there. Um, and you're running around your house, and you're terrified that God's upset with you, and you're trying to please God. Um, and he says, so who is it that casts an evil spell on you to make you think that someone's angry with you? Do you not see the placard that God nailed to the wall? His name was Jesus. And when Jesus was nailed to the wall, nailed to that cross, and stood up, that was a placard hung by your father telling you that you are no longer in debt. What the heck are you doing? I love that. Paul has this way of writing that is eloquent, beautiful, and impactful, and very efficient. You can fit all of this, an entire gospel presentation, into one verse. And he does this over and over and over again. You see, Paul understands that the gospel, when it is fully understood, changes your life, changes how you act, changes how you think about yourself, changes how you look at other people. Um, when you understand that the debt has been paid, that God is not angry with you, that God is looking at you with absolute love, then you are free to love as God loves you. So, 
I want to talk about the two ways that it works itself out, that this idea works itself out. So the idea of being in debt, enslaved, it works itself out in our human relationships, and it works itself out in our spiritual relationship with God. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a lot about how it works out in our human relationships, because this is really important. So um, you ever run into a friend, and that friend can't stop telling you about their accomplishments? You haven't seen them in a long time. Happened to me the other day, run into a friend, um, hey, this is going on, this is going on, I'm really successful here, this is going to be huge, getting famous here, doing this here, this. I'm just listening, I hadn't said a word. And in my mind, I had been studying this passage, and in my mind, I just wanted to say, dude, I don't need all that from you. You're not in debt to me. You don't, you don't need to accomplish a whole bunch of things to earn my love. The gospel tells me that I had to do nothing to receive the love of God. And the gospel tells me that this is how I'm supposed to respond to you. We don't need to do this. You are important. You are meaningful. You are valuable. I value you. I don't need your accomplishments to buy my admiration of you. Yet this is what we do. Over and over. There is a true self that is deep inside of us um, that only comes out at really interesting times. Um, So let's say you're walking with a friend, nice field, and you notice your friend's about to step on, let's say, a snake. Um, Terrifying moment. And you look down, and in that moment, you don't care how eloquent uh, eloquent you sound. You don't care how um, your, your pronunciation of the words... Excuse me. There is a, a, a long reptilian creature at your feet. <laughs> Kindly refrain from taking another step and let us backpedal <laughs> and vacate the premises. Right? No. You kind of go, like, bless you. What? What's happening? You don't care. There is something inside of you that at certain moments, you are not concerned with how you sound, how you look. You, you are concerned with caring for the person who is with you, or you, who you care about. Um, when someone's about to fall off a cliff, or someone's about to touch a live wire, you are, ah, you're making noise. You're like, blah. And they know, wow, they're not making any sense. This must be really serious. <laughs> um, I mean, how mad would you be if somebody was like slowly talking to you about the thousand volt wire you're, you're just about to touch and then while they're talking and they're almost making their point you touch it and you just, ah, you're in the hospital why didn't you tell me? I was working on it <laughs> and so we don't do this there's something inside of us that is, that is honest and that doesn't care and when, when the moment is right it arises out of us now um, you see this a lot I see it a lot as a pastor I see it when death is taking place in a community when someone dies. Um, there is always people who were at odds with this person for whatever reason. They were fighting. They were arguing. They were in a tiff. They were in a business argument. They were in a lawsuit, whatever. And that person, if the person dies, shows up at the funeral, and all they can express is absolute love for the person. Why? Because deep down inside, there's a part of us that is really, really honest and, and, and will say, 
my relationship with them as a human being was far more important than anything else that we went through. And so I will be at their funeral, even though we were fighting. And I will speak words of love and encouragement. And I always tell people when suffering loss, when they're going through things, I, I tell them, hey, pay attention to how you feel right now because you won't always feel like this. And I've sat with groups of friends when we all lost mutual friends and we've sat in a circle and I said, guys, can we pay attention to how we feel right now? All we want to do is be with each other. We no longer care about our accomplishments or our bills, our mortgages, or whether or not our house is selling or whether or not our car is broken or the people who gossiped about us. All we're talking about is goodness and love and grace. And we are looking in the eyes of each other and we are experiencing what life is actually about But this will fade, and slowly it will normalize, and we will get back to fighting about all the stupid stuff that we fight about. And so deep down inside of us, there is a truth that only seems to come out in the worst possible times. What if, though? What if we could tap into that and remember it? That's why in times of difficulty, I try to talk to people and I say, hey, what you're feeling now, meditate on this, ponder this, keep this, hold on to this. Try to take it farther than other people do. Try to take it with you. When you were in the presence of your family, feel it. Because somewhere along the line, we get bewitched by whatever, and we think now that suddenly our importance and our meaning and our glory and our admiration comes from all these other things which really have nothing to do with anything because the fact is... um, when tragedy happens, that's going to be the last thing on your mind. And the first thing that's on your mind is the thing that you have been neglecting for a very long time. Um, so here's the thing. Paul's audience, they came to Christ for, out of faith. Um, they came from the Greco-Roman world, not the Jewish world. They didn't know about the law. Hold on. <clears throat> they didn't know about the law. They had no knowledge that there was all these Jewish laws about what you could plant in your garden, what you had to wear, how you had to cover your head, ways you had to offer sacrifices, ways you had to tithe. Their life, and, and the Jews believed that this is what you had to do to keep the approval of God, and they were hoping that if everyone would live this way, it would usher in the second coming of God, all this stuff. Um, and so the Greco-Romans, um, they were always just trying to get the attention of God. And so they were doing, you know, um, there was these pagan festivals that were very, very sexual because they wanted to sort of get the attention of the goddess of fertility to send rain so their crops would grow. So it's, they're trying to get the attention of God. And both sides sort of had this, in Paul's time, both sides were, were wrong. And so they came to Christ out of faith, and they understand there's this awakening in them. And they say, oh, that's, that's what this is all about. But then suddenly the Judaizers, as Paul calls them, come in, and they start telling him, okay, well, now that you're followers of Jesus, now... Um, you need to also convert to Judaism and you need to start keeping all of the Jewish laws. And Paul says, the whole point of this letter is writing against these people and saying they are the ones that have been enslaving you and trapping you and trying to keep you uh, from really progressing in all this. Um, And I've felt this as a kid. I remember at a very young age coming to an understanding of grace. And it made me happy. It made me a joyful person. Um, It... It made me thankful. I don't really feel like I've been a discontent person um, in my life. I, I've, I've always felt happy with what I had. And I think um, 
at a very young age, my, my parents instilled in me this understanding of grace. Um, and that I have everything I need, and whatever I don't have, I don't need to become who God wants me to be. And anything that I do have, anything that is in my life, is obviously necessary for me to become who Christ wants me to be. Um, and so, at some point, though, when I was a teenager, I remember um, lots and lots of, of um, the older folks that worked at the ministry that I was, I was working in the kitchen, like washing dishes and stuff, and they were always talking to me about how, hey, Christians don't do that. 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 And they're adding all these laws to this random, like random laws that had nothing to do with anything other than outward appearance and they were cultural norms. And I was uneasy with it. And what it did is it kind of made me angry and scared and it made me a little bit rebellious and it made me, it, it led my brother into absolute rebellion. <laughs> he became so rebellious that he became a missionary and went to the jungles. Um, I was like, I'm out. And so... I remember this, and, and we do this to each other. And so Paul, later on, is going to talk about this. He's going to say, look, you started here, and then you're ending here. This doesn't make any sense. Let's not add things to the gospel. Let's not try to tell people that you have to earn God's favor through doing this and this and this and this. Because it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so there's a little way it, it, it attaches sort of to our relationships and to our relationship with God. Now, um, there's other ways. I was sitting in a meeting uh, recently, like last Thursday, and there was a guy next to me and another guy across the table, and the guy said, man, I really like those Armani frames he was wearing. And, and I always notice people's responses when they're complimented, because I'm really un- uncomfortable with compliments. Um, and he, he looks at him and he says, um, so he goes, hey, I, lo- I really like those glasses. He goes, I got them on sale. My thought process is like, why did you just say that? You know why I said that? We do this. I mean, if I tell you nice sweater, you look at me and say, well, nice shirt. I like your car. I like your shoes. Um, we reply to compliments with compliments. Why? Because we have to pay it. We can't accept gifts. We have a really hard time with it because we are Americans and we earn what we have. And so you get invited to someone's house for dinner, and you enjoy it, and it's wonderful. You eat all the food. What do you say on the way out the door? You turn around and you say, and next time, we'll have you over. Why? Because you've got to pay them back. Yeah, even if you don't. Even if you don't do it. You're not really planning on doing it, but you're letting them know. You're letting them know. This is, by the way, this is not gift, okay? I'm going to pay you back. I felt this last night. My, my brother-in-law watched our kids overnight. Um, I went and picked him up. And on my way out the door, I was very tempted, but I remembered my sermon. I was very tempted to say, and next week I'll watch your kids, but now I don't have to. I've learned to accept a gift. But this is a big deal. We can't accept gifts. We can't do it. Um, We are uncomfortable with grace. Uncomfortable with it. And so we receive, we wake up in the morning and we look around and we're like, man, I'm in America, which makes me honestly in the 1% of richest people in the world... Look where I am. Um, I better tithe. I better go to church. I better, I better do this and that and this and that. I better get involved in all these things. Um, literally, none of those things are bad to do. Um, but literally, you're probably not doing it for any other reason than you feel guilty. Guilt is not what the gospel is about. It is about thankfulness. And so what if your life was lived in a way that said thank you? Not, 
I'll pay you back, God. I'll pay you back, God. I mean, God feels this. We do this to each other. We do this on a massive scale to God. You pray that prayer, you know, God, if I get this job, I'll fill in the blank. Yeah, it's not, that's not what this is. Um, I've, I've, in the last year, um, through sensing discontentment in my life and uh, a little bit here and there, and, and um, whenever I sense something that's off kilter, I, I feel like I need to practice more spiritual disciplines. And so, again, I read that book I recommend to every one of you all the time, Celebration of Discipline, and I, I started practicing um, celebration. I get up every single morning. Uh, well, not, well, not every single morning. Like every, you know... And, Two or three mornings a week. Um, as much as like, maybe sometimes four though. And I go downtown and I, I take a moment and I stop and I'm quiet in the middle of a city that is empty at 5.30 in the morning. And the first words out of my mouth are thank you. And I name all the things I'm thankful for in my life. It has absolutely changed who I am. Um, it's given me peace. It's given me joy. It's, it's, um, it's been wonderful. And so this is big. I, I, what if our life was, was, was just a big thank you? What if that's what it became? What would that do? That would make you a more generous person for sure. Um, I, I, I was, a couple of months ago, I was talking to a, a pastor friend who said that um, he, he got a text or something. And he, said, he said, hey, can we meet? His, I can't. I'm on my way to my daughter's ballet recital. It's the middle of the day. And the guy texted him back and said, wow, I wish I had a job where I could get off in the middle of the day to go to my daughter's ballet recital. To which my friend replied, you should get one. I have one, and it's awesome. spirit of thankfulness like it, it just freed him he's i don't care like that's jealousy that's not gospel uh, i am bewitched by no one i am controlled by i don't owe anyone anything but but what paul said a debt of love <laughs> and so i want you to be free you don't have to you don't have to play the game you don't when you see that friend you don't have to start talking about all your accomplishments and hoping that they are impressed by the time that you've spent away from them no no no, like you, you don't have to. There will come a moment where you will sit around with a group of friends after suffering a loss and you will, you will know what's most important. What if you could live that way before you got there? It, it has to do with thankfulness. And knowing that the things that God has given you should flow through you to other people. And so what this does is you start seeing the homeless person on the side of the road and, and suddenly you become the homeless person and you're there and you realize that God is the driver and, and, and sitting at the stoplight and God looked at you and he looked in your eyes and he affirmed you. He said, hey, I want you to know I see you. I know you exist. I know you're real. And, and sometimes I'm not going to give you what you want, but I'm going to give you what you need. And so I'm going to uh, unfold a plan that is going to work towards the salvation of you. This is cosmically what was happening. We didn't deserve anything we received from God. And all the things that we wanted, we wanted to justify ourselves because it feels really good. It's really prideful. We didn't get any of that. And then, and then God says, no, what I'm actually going to do is I have a plan that I'm going to unfold. I'm going to take part in. I'm going to ask you to take part in it. And we're going to do this together. And, 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 and my plan is this. And he unfolds it. And, and as you look at the person, whoever it is, whatever situation it is, that there's one way you want to respond, suddenly you become that person and Jesus becomes you and you think, well, God did this for me. And so I look you in the eyes and I affirm, I I see you. You are loved, you are important. You are not ignored. You are valued. You have purpose, you have meaning. And then I'm going to find some way to take part in some system that is going to free you. 
and bring you salvation. That's how this works. You're not in debt. You don't owe them anything but the debt of love. And when we can work this out and make this our auto-response, like seeing a snake in the grass, what if love and thankfulness was the auto-response to every moment we had? And so we're going to take communion. Communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and gather around the room. And uh, we are going to spend some time in thankfulness. I want you to think of all just the millions of blessings that you have. And I want you to exercise genuine thankfulness for these things. When was the last time you paused and said, God, I did not deserve the breath I had today. I do not deserve the neighborhood I live in. I did not deserve the food in my fridge or the children that I have or the family members that love me. I don't deserve to sit in this room with this many wonderful people. I don't deserve any of it. It's all a gift. Thank you. And you walk out the door and you respond as though you are thankful for all of it. And so our communion servers are spread around the room. There's bread and there's wine. These are the communion elements. They're common things. Communion, the root word is the idea of common. They're just common things. It's a simple exercise to help us find the weights of God and the glory of God in the common elements of our daily lives. And so we take a piece of bread. It symbolizes the body of Christ when he was broken for us. We dip it in the wine. It symbolizes the blood of Christ spilled and broken for us. And we remember the suffering of an innocent, just, righteous man um, whose life was poured out for you so that you can have understanding and salvation and you can know what life is really about. And so instead of focusing on life after you die, you can start to really understand that there is life before death. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Be with us now as we take communion. Change us. In your name, amen. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ spilled for you.